Good morning. It's good to see you. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. We are so glad that you are here on this really beautiful day outside, and it's beautiful to be inside with God's people, and I'm excited to be here with you. And if you've got your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you brought them with you this morning, take them out and let's turn to, once again, to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6. We are going to continue our study of this book that we have been on now for quite a number of weeks, and we are going to continue today. As you're making your way there to Mark 6, I want to just kind of share with you a little bit of an article that I both listened to some this week and also read. Uh, it was entitled The New Normal. And in this article, I found the, the author's insights and, and, and the words that he shared there to be quite intriguing and even convicting. Um, he begins his article by listing many of the advancements that this present generation uh, that we are able to enjoy and, and to, uh, to utilize. He, he talks about the benefits that come from having the newest and fastest computers and phones and, and, and even appliances in our house and, and things along that nature. And, and, and he says that all of that stuff, all of this advancement, he says is meant to make our lives easier. He says for us, new is usually better. It's usually faster, it's cheaper, it's lighter, it's even more powerful. And those are we typically think of as being good things, and they are. But then he wanted us to consider, he launches into a consideration of this question. He says, but what is the new normal for the Christian? In fact, he wonders, is there a new normal? He wonders, what if the new normal for the believer, the new way of doing things for the follower of Christ, what if it's not changed in over 2,000 years? What if the new normal, he says, was actually the old concept of patterning our lives after Jesus? What if normal for us meant not convenience, speed, or even comfort? What if it meant a radical dying to ourselves with, with hearts that beat to a different drum, with eyes that look to something greater, with feet that stand firm in the truth of our God, with lives free from the overwhelming stress, of overwhelming stress and guilt? What if, what if the new normal meant that we were souls that longed for God's kingdom and longed for God's glory? And then he says this, what if for too long the bar has been set too low? What if God has only begun what he will do in and through your life? That's a question to ponder. What if God has only started what he wants to do in and through your life? And then he finishes the article with these questions. He says, do you believe that? Do you want that? Because God does. Now, what initially struck me when I read this article and was the realization that in many ways... The advancements in subsequent technologies and all of the different things that we have available to us have had the unfortunate effect, I think, of making us even more self-focused than we already were. I mean, anymore, even we as Christians, we have very little patience for things that aren't fast, things that aren't convenient, things that aren't comfortable for us. Furthermore, while the idea and the concept of, of, of being of, of sacrificing and dying to oneself, while that's never been overtly appealing to anyone, it is especially so in, in this me-centered, me-first society, we have largely abandoned those thoughts altogether. Result is that 
The things that typically make our hearts beat faster, the things that typically cause us to, to, to get excited, the goals and the focus of our lives, well, they become short-sighted. They become more myopic. They are not the things that made Jesus' heart beat faster. If we're honest, our goals and our pursuits, they're far different from the ones that we're challenged with in Scripture. In fact, for many, I put it down this way this week, a burning desire and drive for great comfort, great convenience, and great contentment has replaced the burning desire and drive to fulfill the Great Commission. You recall that the Great Commission in that Jesus says that we are to go and to make disciples. But if we're honest, many of us would probably have to admit that we have been lulled into a state of, of ease and even luxury to the degree that we are no longer motivated by our Lord's pressing and serious mission to sacrifice and die to ourselves so that the gospel message can be proclaimed to those who are lost and headed for destruction. As I said, what I read this week challenged me, confronted me. And furthermore, what I want you to know, my study from Mark chapter 6 has also challenged and confronted me. And my feeling simply is, is that those of us who are believers, those of us who count ourselves to be followers of Christ, are going to be challenged by this text this morning. So I've given you that introduction, and maybe by the way, just give you an opportunity if you want to leave now, this is a perfect chance. But as the title of the sermon this morning makes clear, there are some urgent demands of the gospel with which we will be confronted in this text this morning. So with as an introduction, let's read it together. I'm going to pick up reading there in the middle of verse 6 where we read this words, Then he, that is Jesus, went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there. Shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Now, the New King James includes this last part. Some of your versions will not have it, but the New King James says this, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Verse 12. So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the conviction that it brings. Father, it's hard for us sometimes to thank you for conviction, but we know that conviction comes as a result of the Holy Spirit working within us through the power of the Word that we study. And so today, I pray for that conviction to come, and, and I thank you for it because that that proves to us that you still love us and that you still care for us and that you are still doing a great work within us. And, and just as we pondered earlier, what if, what if you've only just begun the wonderful things that you want to do in and through our lives? 
I pray that that thought would grasp us this morning and help us to be able to understand this word that is in front of us and that we would apply the truth of this word to our lives so that when we leave this place, we will leave as obedient disciples. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you notice I I began reading in the middle of verse 6 there. um, Typically, you don't always start in the middle of a verse, but I felt like that that was important in this particular case. That verse says that Jesus went about other villages uh, in a circuit teaching. And and the reason why that verse, I believe, was probably added at the end of verse 6 as we normally have it there is because that action of him going out to other villages and teaching came as a result of the fact what we learned last week, that he was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. And so he had been teaching there in his hometown of Nazareth. They had rejected him, and as a result of that, he went out to other villages in a circuit teaching. That's a a good common thought and a good way of understanding it. And so truly, the end of verse 6 does find itself rooted in the previous text that we studied last week. But I also want you to know is the great introduction to what we are going to look at this week because it was in the process of him going from town to town to town that we learned that he called his disciples to himself. Now, in that going from village to village in a circuit teaching, we learned something specific about Jesus. This is what he had been doing all along since he first started his earthly ministry. In fact, you will recall that even though it was the the rejection that he experienced from his hometown in Nazareth that sent him out to these other villages, it was actually his acceptance and his, his great reception from the town of Capernaum that caused him to do the same thing. Back in chapter 1, if you remember, it was all the people that he had done these healings and and done these great things and taught in the synagogue and they loved what they heard. And the next day, after he had gone out from a place to pray, they were clamoring for him, begging him. His disciples even went out and said, Look, we wonder where you were at. Everybody back in the city is looking for you. And Jesus said there in chapter 1, verse 38, he says, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. That simply just reiterates for us the importance of the proclamation of the gospel. You see, Jesus came not to just reside in one place, but he came with an, with an urgent message that was, that was for many people. And so he went out around different villages in a circuit. Sometimes he was rejected, sometimes he was received, but his method was the same. He went out preaching the gospel to all the places that he could. And the urgency of this message was reiterated for us back in chapter 1 as well. Verses 14 and 15, Mark began his gospel by telling us that shortly after his baptism, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The compulsion, the drive that Jesus demonstrated in moving from town to town to town, from village to village to village, proclaiming the good news of God's grace and the need for repentance in light of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, what that does is reminds us of the first thing that I want you to see on your outline this morning. The point, first point on your outline this morning is this. There is an urgency to the gospel message. There is an urgency to the gospel message. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the time to repent and believe the gospel is now. His point was that there was no time to waste. His message was an urgent message to those 
who were in desperate need of, of, of this message because they remained unprepared for the coming judgment of God. And what I want you to know is that was true not only in Jesus' day, it's true in our day as well. Friend, the gospel message is a message of good news, but it is only a message of good news to those who will receive the fact that Jesus Christ came to die in their place. It is only good news for those who will believe it and repent of their sins and place their trust in Christ. Those who steadfastly refuse to do so, well, they do it to their everlasting doom. The gospel message is a message of life and death, and therefore, by its very nature, it is an urgent message. Now, that urgency is not only communicated to us in the fact that Jesus made it his habit of going from village to village to village, teaching and preaching this kingdom, but it's also made aware to us by what we read there in verse 7 that Jesus calls his disciples to himself. And then he sends them out two by two to do what they have seen him doing. John MacArthur in his commentary notes that this is a turning point that we're reading about here in chapter 6. It's a turning point in the Lord's ministry because in sending out these disciples to become his apostles, to become his representatives, he is strategically multiplying the extent of his ministry. This is, after all, the purpose for which Jesus had called his disciples to begin with. If you remember, when he, when he went to those fishermen and he said, look, put down your nets and come follow me, I will make you what? Fishers of men. Well, now's the time. I called you for this purpose. Now's the opportunity for you to go out and fulfill that for which I called you. You see, up to this point, the disciples had basically followed Jesus around. They'd listened to him preach in the synagogues. They'd heard him teach and give all the parables that he had, he had taught them. They had traveled with him. They'd seen him perform these miracles, touch people, touch those that were outcast from society that nobody else would have ever come within, within 100 yards of. Jesus was right there touching and healing them. They'd watched him do all these things. They'd watched him deliver people of demonic possession. The disciples had seen all of these things, but now the moment had come for them to move from a passive role to an active role. The urgency of the gospel demanded it to be so. In fact, note the next point on your outline this morning. Point number two is this. The urgency of the gospel called for the disciples to move from observers to participants sent out in Christ's power. In other words, they were no longer to be a group of guys who were sitting on the sidelines. Rather, they were to be Christ's representatives going out and doing what he had done filled with his power. Now, notice that the Lord sent them out two by two. This was also strategic on the Lord's part. In pairs, they could provide mutual support and protection for one another. In pairs, they would be able to strengthen one another through moral support and encouragement. Furthermore, by traveling in pairs, they would be able to follow the Jewish tradition that Moses had set forth back in Deuteronomy that said that a message was to be confirmed if it had the support of at least two messengers and two witnesses. So the Lord sends them out in pairs. And what exactly did He send them out to do? Well, Mark begins in verse 7 by telling us that He sent them out and gave them power over unclean spirits. So the first thing that we know explicitly is that they would have the power to cast out demons. That's the first thing that we understand. But then later down in verses 10 and 11, implicitly we recognize that these disciples would either be received 
or they'd be rejected based upon what the people in those villages heard them say. And so consequently, implicitly, what we know is that they were going out into these villages not just delivering people of demons, but proclaiming. They were declaring something. They were declaring, as we will see, the gospel. And note where we see the final full-orbed kind of understanding of what they were called to do down in verses 12 and 13. Because there, Mark tells us, they went out and they preached that people should repent. And then they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. There we get the full understanding of what Jesus sent them out to do. And, and notice the priority. First and foremost priority was to preach a message of repentance in light of the inbreaking power of the gospel. And, and then that message was the first and foremost message that they were called to preach. And then that message, that validity of the gospel would then be undergirded. It would, it would be uh, uh, accredited by their ability to have power over the demonic world and their ability to heal people who were sick. Jesus then, that's exactly what he had been doing, and Jesus then sent his disciples out to do exactly what he had been, and he sent them out with their authority and with their power. Now, notice that it says there that he sent them out with, the, that he gave them their power to be able to do that. It was his power that he sent them with. Verse 7, that word power is the word exousia in Greek. It carries the meaning of both having the, the right and the ability to carry something out. Philip Graham Rankin has explained it this way. He said a street gang might have the power to control a neighborhood because of their intimidation through their threat of violence and in various ways, they might be able to actually control a neighborhood through their power, but they did not have the right to do that. A police officer, on the other hand, has the right to control gang violence in a neighborhood, but without the proper backup, he may not have the ability to do it. So in life, there are times when we recognize that, that there are some who have the right to do something, but not the ability, or they have the ability, but not the right. Understand this, when the disciples were sent out, they were sent with both. They had not only the right and the authority to do what Jesus did, they had the power and ability to do what Jesus did. That is a magnificent understanding of how the disciples, these first apostles, were sent out. And you and I should recognize that we too, we too have been called to be sent out. And we are sent out with the authority that Jesus Christ himself gives us. Let me remind you of what the... the Great Commission says one more time in Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 Jesus establishes the authority on the front and he says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you and listen lo I'm with you always even to the end of the age so what we recognize is that the Lord himself who commissions us to go promises that he will be with us and all authority has been given to him. So by necessity, we have that same authority to be able to go out and proclaim in his name. Not only that, but remember what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He goes on and writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, that we are strengthened 
through the power of His Spirit. Do you, you get the understanding here is that He who calls us and He who sends us out doesn't do so so that we walk out there anemically with no ability whatsoever and no power behind it. No, He strengthens us for that which He calls us to do. And what that tells us is that we've not been saved to be passive observers but to be active participants in the advancement of the kingdom. I asked our Wednesday night Bible study group this past Wednesday night, I said, have you ever thought about why God just didn't when he saved you, when he gave you the marvelous grace and mercy that all of us who are believers know that has been passed to us through Jesus Christ, why didn't he just take us home to heaven right then? Why did he choose to leave us here? To walk through this world and experience all the struggle and the difficulties that we experience, to have to say goodbye to loved ones, to have to go and have doctor's appointments that we just really don't appreciate because of the news that we get and it breaks our hearts, to, to have to go through the struggles that we have to go through at times with people that, that rub us the wrong way and maybe we rub them the wrong way. Why didn't God just say, listen, when I save you, I'm just going to take you home to be with me. Why? Why did he leave us? He left us, I believe. Because he's commissioned us to go into a lost world where there are people who need to hear the same gospel message that we have heard. We need to be the ones who are taking that message to them, serving as an example for them to show them this is what the power of the gospel can do. It can take a wretch just like me and save me, and it can do it for you too. That's why he leaves us here. Until our time is done, then he'll call us home. That wasn't in my notes. That was free. What I want you to know, though, is this. The urgency of the gospel message demands that we not just be passive observers, that we be active participants. Notice, though, not only did our Lord call his disciples to go, but he told them how they must go. Listen again to verses 8 and 9. He said, he commanded them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put... On two tunics. If you read Mark and Luke, you're going to see a little bit of difference in how Matthew, excuse me, Matthew and Luke, if you read, you'll see a little bit of difference in how Matthew records it and Luke does. Matthew says not to take staffs, not to carry sandals with them. Some have said, well, there's an obvious discrepancy between what Mark says. Mark says to take a staff, but he only says to take one. Matthew says don't take staffs, plural. Mark says wear your sandals. Matthew says don't take sandals, which the way that I understand that means just simply that what, what Jesus was saying is, is you need to travel light. Don't, don't start carrying a bunch of extra stuff with you. Take what you have on. Wear what you have on and go to the places I will say. As a matter of fact, MacArthur writes it this way. He says what they, that, that the, the journey that they uh, went on where they were to take what they already had in their possession, including the staff in their hands, the clothes on their back, and the sandals on their feet. Nothing else was to be taken on their journey. In other words, what we begin to understand is, is they were to travel light. And the question is why? What purpose would that serve? Why did the Lord insist of this way of travel at this point? Well, that brings me to the third point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. The urgency of the gospel necessitated that the disciples travel light and depend on God's provision. You see, in one respect, Jesus was emphasizing the urgency of the gospel by instructing his disciples that they needed to be able to leave at a moment's notice. In other words, not being burdened down with a lot of things to carry with them would increase their flexibility and their mobility to leave at any given time. 
But there's an even greater point that to be understood, and I believe traveling light not only had practical ramifications, but it also served as a means of teaching them the important lesson regarding dependency. You see, the point that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand was that when they traveled, they needed to trust God that he would provide for them. That's really an extension of what he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. The disciples would have heard Jesus preach that sermon. In Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33, Jesus says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For that's the things that the Gentiles seek after. He says, But your heavenly Father knows all the things that you need. Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see, in sending out his disciples with these instructions that they should travel light, Jesus was just confirming for them that they could trust their heavenly Father to take care of them and their needs. Now, let me also say this. These instructions that Jesus gives here, I believe, should be understood more descriptively rather than prescriptively. And Here's why I say that. You see... Jesus sent his disciples out here for a specific mission at a specific time that he was, he was sending them on. It was not indicative of how he would send them out every time, nor do I believe that it should be understood as the way that he sends out every missionary today. In fact, later on in the disciples' lives, Jesus sent them out again. And Luke records it in Luke chapter 22. And he asked them a question referring back to this moment. He says, Guys, you remember when I sent you out without money bag and without a knapsack and without sandals? Did you lack anything? And they looked at him and they said, well, no. Then he said to them, Luke 22, verse 36, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, well, let him sell his garment and buy one. In other words, the circumstances under which Jesus sent his disciples out varied and called then for a varied amounts of provisions that they would take with them. However, the call to be dependent upon God to provide for them did not vary. They were to trust the one who promised to care for them and give them what they needed. You and I then must remember the same thing. We must also remember that though the Lord may not call us to sell everything we own, though the Lord may not call us to a vow of poverty, we must recognize, particularly in our culture, we are surrounded by so many material possessions. We are surrounded by things that focus our attention on ourselves. We are surrounded by things that are, that are built for our comfort and our convenience and our recreation. And so therefore we must be on guard because of all of these things that are constantly in our lives. We must be on guard as one writer has put it this week that I read. He said, the abundance of our possessions unfortunately makes it virtually impossible for us to go should Jesus call us. The lesson of traveling light should serve to remind us that as disciples under the burden of carrying an urgent message of the gospel to a lost world, the essentials of life are not stuff. The essentials of life are a dependency upon God. Now, 
Corollary to that point is the next one that I want you to see. The fourth point this morning is this. The urgency of the gospel meant that the disciples had to focus on their mission rather than their comfort. It was customary in, in, in Jewish towns for if a Jew was traveling into that city that they would open their home up and allow other Jews to stay with them. Inns and, and places of public play, uh, to, to stay were, were, were very uh, unsafe and unsanitary. And so to stay in someone's home was, was typically expected. Unfortunately, there were many who took advantage of people in that regard, and many of them were false teachers. And they would go and stay in someone's home, and they'd constantly be looking for a better place to go stay. If they could just get their foot in one spot, they'd look to see if they could, you know, leverage that for a better spot a little bit later on. And in the process, they were always looking for a handout and looking for money and taking advantage of their unsuspecting hosts. Jesus knew of this, and so consequently, he tells his disciples, if you go into a city and someone welcomes you in their home, that's where you go and that's where you stay. In other words, you're not to show favoritism. You're not to leverage the gospel in some way for your own benefit, and you're certainly not to diminish the power of the good news and cause it to be looked down upon in disrepute because you have treated people unfortunately and, and, and with lack of respect. And so Jesus says... Your comfort is not nearly as important as the mission that I'm calling you to be upon. In other words, don't exploit that power that I give you for personal gain. Now again, we should recognize that as disciples who have been called to be ambassadors for Christ today, we too must understand that our mission is more important than our comfort. In fact, sacrifice is a necessary element in following Christ's commands. His mission will not always allow us to live comfortable and trouble-free lives, but we are called to be content with what He offers, recognizing that He is the one who provides for us. Now, what that means is there would be some places that the disciples would go where they would be received, but then in verse 11, we're alerted that there would be some places that go where they would not be received. In fact, verse 11 says this, Whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, not everyone would be as kind and welcoming to the disciples in the gospel message. And to help us understand just how important it was to, to do that action of shaking off the dust from one's feet, we need to understand exactly how the Jews saw that. The Jews, when they would travel outside of Israel and go into Gentile countries, and they would go into pagan lands, whenever they would travel back home, they would make it a habit of shaking the dirt off the bottom of their shoes when they went back into Israel because they didn't even want to take the foul dirt from the foreign lands back into their home country. It was a way of, of showing judgment against the pagans who did not follow their God. When Jesus says to do the same thing, when he sends his disciples out to the lost sheep of Israel, and he sends them out as his representatives to declare the good news of the gospel. He says, when you go somewhere, if someone rejects that good news and rejects me, then you are to do the same thing as you would do to those pagans. You shake the dust from the bottom of your shoes. Why? Well, because it was a testimony to the seriousness of what they were doing, to the, re to the rejection that they were making of Jesus Christ. And so that leads me to the fifth point that I want you to see. The urgency of the gospel demanded that the disciples testify to its seriousness. Friend, I want you to know the gospel is serious business. As I mentioned to you, when I read this passage initially, not all manuscripts include the last part 
there that says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It is, though, included in other synoptic gospels, and that comparison does come from the lips of Jesus in other places. And what that means for us simply is this. When someone rejects the good news of God's salvation that has been given to us through Jesus Christ, when they decide to turn a deaf ear and to reject it out of hand, Jesus is saying that it will be more tolerable for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which according to Genesis 19, God destroyed by fire, it will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than it will be for one who rejects the gospel that was, had been, been preached by one of his representatives. And we come to understand is that Christ tells his disciples here, it underscores the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel. To have the message presented and explained and then to reject it means to incur upon oneself the most severe judgment of God. And friends, that's just why I stand here week after week after week. And I urge you not to turn a deaf ear to the gospel. The reason is that eternity hangs in the balance. Eternal life in heaven or eternal death in hell. However, I also want you to recognize that week after week after week, I know that there will be some who will receive that good news. They will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet there will be some who will continue in their rejection and their hard-hearted rejection of the gospel. And frankly, that's what Jesus is alerting us to in these passages. He says, some are going to receive you, others are going to reject your message. But if they do, recognize they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting the gospel message. You shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony to how serious their rejection is, and then you move to the next place and continue preaching the gospel. That leads me then to the sixth and the final point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. And it's this, the urgency of the gospel required obedience. The urgency of the gospel required obedience. Jesus called them and then sent them out, and the disciples obeyed by going. We must not overlook that point, especially in light of the promised opposition that we find that the disciples were going to... In, in Matthew 10, the parallel to this passage, which is an expanded version of what we read here in Mark, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, look, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst ravenous wolves. He says, you're, you're, you're going to experience some things. Brother's going to deliver a brother up. Father's going to uh, go against his child. Children are going to rise up against their parents because of this message that you're taking. He says, you're going to be hated for my name's sake. You're going to be persecuted in the cities in which you go. In spite, though, of all that hostility and all that persecution that his disciples would face, Jesus nevertheless called them to go in anyway. And they went. And brothers and sisters, you and I must obey as well, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of the fact that we will be rejected. It is not our prerogative to be disobedient to the call of the Master that He has placed upon our lives. I shared this quote with my Wednesday night Bible study group this past week. John Piper says this, that according to the message of Scripture, you can only be one of three things. A goer, a sender, or disobedient. There's no other options. 
However, let me speak specifically to the Ivy Creek Baptist Church. You see, we must not consider that our responsibility is completed by simply putting money in an offering basket when it comes by. We must recognize that all of us need to be actively involved in the ministry of sharing the gospel with others, whether that's through our travel to other parts of the world, as some of us have been able to do this year, or, or maybe it's through actively going out and evangelizing in our community. Or perhaps it is just simply being faithful to sharing the good news of the gospel with your friends and your family and your neighbors that you come in contact week after week after week. Or maybe it's through sharing the good news through serving in the various ministries that we have available and spots that are open for people to fill in this congregation. Listen, as we noted at the outset, Christ has not called us to be passive observers, but to be active and obedient participants in the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. So, what we've seen from our study of this passage is that the urgency of the gospel demands some very specific things from us. And what we've also seen is that those demands really haven't changed in over 2,000 years. That then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. My sermon in a sentence is this. The urgency of the gospel necessitates that we be active disciples who live lives dependent upon God's power and provision focused on the mission of obediently proclaiming a straightforward message of faith and repentance. The question, the question that I have this morning is simply this. Does that statement accurately reflect who you are? As the article that I read this week asked, has the bar been set too low for too long? What if, what if God has only begun to what he will do in and through your life? What if he's just started? Doesn't matter what your age is. Doesn't matter what your background is. What if God has just begun what he wants to do in and through your life? And then the question is this, do you believe that? Do you want it? Because brothers and sisters, according to God's word, he does. This is the Word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the convicting power of your Word. 